This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. So welcome to the Becoming Educated podcast today. I'm Darren Leslie. Today I'm joined by Joe Facer. Joe has worked in education since 2010. She's an English teacher and has worked as a classroom teacher, head of department, assistant head and deputy head in five schools. She's currently the principal designate of Arkson Academy, a new school opening in Ealing in September 2020. Joe wrote an writes an excellent blog at readingallthebooks.com and has published a brilliant book, Simplicity Rules, How Simplifying What We Do in the Classroom Can Benefit Children, which we're going to discuss today. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure for, for me, certainly. Uh, just to we can just start off uh, nice and easy, could you share with the listeners a little bit about your creative date and how you came to write Simplicity Rules? Yeah, sure. Um, so I... I went to university in Ireland and um, as a part-time job I, I worked in a kind of Saturday school for gifted and talented children and it was amazing because I was a teaching assistant for which you needed no qualifications at all and um, in the break uh, one of the organisers came up to me and said do you know anything about drama and I was like yeah I've done a bit of drama and, and she was like great could you teach drama? Um, in half an hour because our teachers called in sick and so my first experience of teaching was to being thrown into this Saturday lesson where I had never taught any drama before I didn't have a clue what I was doing and it was probably the most fun hour of my life and um, and so my first teaching experience was that totally unqualified teaching drama um, in a country that was not my own and then yeah came over to England to do teach first really loved teaching loved it was terrible at it. I remember saying to my mentor, I love this job so much, but if I don't get better, I need to find another job because it's just, you know, I'm not making children's lives better. So that first year was dark. Um, and yeah, and then I um, I went to be a head of department after three years. I had, I just didn't, I didn't think I was ready. I know I wasn't ready, but my, again, my mentor pushed me and she was like, I think you're ready. I think you should at least try. Um, so no one was more surprised than I was when I when I got that job. And yeah, and it's been a it's been a very strange ride. And, and I think, you know, I always thought I'd stay five years as a teacher, five years as a head of department, five years as an assistant head, five years as a deputy head. Um, but also I can't say no. And when opportunities arise, I just I, I find it really hard not to I'm just overexcited by everything. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's been my career. And in terms of the book, um, actually, uh, a, a lady named Claire at Routledge, who was absolutely wonderful, she just got in touch with me and said she'd read one of my blog posts, and and she she said, do you think this would make a good book? Uh, and she was amazing because she wrote this massive email where she kind of outlined what I would include in the book. I mean, she basically wrote the whole outline for me and all I had to do was go, yeah, sure, that sounds great, and then just write it. So it was a really, for me, it was a really fun experience because I'd written all these kind of blog posts that didn't really have a coherency to them. And I wrote the book in about six or seven weeks of just sitting down and, and writing every time I got time and it's really helped me personally to to think about what I think about teaching and, and as a, a principal designate a lot of what I do now is decide what we think the right way is to do blah and and it's so helpful to have the book because with the book behind me I know what I think the right way is to do all these things it might not be the right thing but, but yeah so I'm really happy that other people like the book but you know um, that's kind of a bonus <laughs> certainly, I, I certainly thoroughly, as I said to you, I certainly thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and I loved your honesty there, talking about how, how you were terrible at teaching in your, in your first year. I think yeah, that that would resonate with with many people that that listen, and, and certainly at times when I started teaching as well, I was like, oh, I'm maybe not cut out for this. But um, just to get into your book, you start off in the in the in the introduction. You said that teaching is a wonderful pr- profession. But it's also a tough profession. You talk about how we've overcomplicated it. How have we overcomplicated teaching? Yeah, so I think I think there's a bit of it. There's a big issue at the heart of teaching, which is that um, we don't really know what makes a teacher great. And um, you know, Rob Coe always tells me off whenever I say, "Oh, I just go into people's classrooms and I and I can tell if they're good or not." And Rob Coe's like, "No, you can't. Don't be an idiot." Um, 
And I think that's, you know, so we don't really know if someone's a good or a bad teacher. We don't really know that. And then, and then we also don't really trust teachers. So we, we don't trust that what they're doing in the classroom is working. So we make all of these measures up of how we can measure whether a teacher is good. And we create lots of paperwork that people can fill in to reassure us that that teacher is a good teacher. Uh, and, and we spend all this time creating this sort of palliative paperwork for managers so they can have it and go, I've got my paperwork. I can put a tick in that box. That's something I can control and do. Um, and no one uses the paperwork. No one needs the po paperwork. We, we sink all this time into writing schemes of work. And we used to write lesson plans. Some schools still do write lesson plans and pro formers. Uh, and then on top of that, we complicate the lessons themselves. I, you know, I still... I go to schools, even really great schools, and I see teachers handing out like worksheet number three of the lesson. You know, we're 20 minutes in, and these children are sticking this, the third worksheet into their books, um, and and there's just not enough reading stuff, grappling with it, doing stuff, which is just. I think that some people think that's too simple, and it, maybe that's boring, but that's that's how you learn. Um, and and we so yeah we've overcomplicated it in, in many ways. Yeah, there's there's definitely beauty in, in breaking things down to its simplicity, and, and you kind of talk at length in that in your book. So just to start off with, then you mentioned about how, that's how we learn. So why is it important then that, that teachers understand how children learn? So I think it changes what you do in the classroom if you understand how children learn. If I think back. Uh, to my third year of teaching when I had a year nine class who I had taught since they were in year seven. So I taught them for three years and they still didn't know what a simile was. And like, that's not their fault. <laughs> that's categorically my fault. How can I have had the same class for three years and they still didn't know this really basic thing? Um, and when when I read those books, so I read so many books and so many amazing blog posts about how testing, uh, uh, how testing works and how memory develops, and that totally changed how I planned lessons. It changed how I planned uh, a scheme of work and a scheme of lessons because I I'd completely changed my understanding. And I I really think that that is the core of it. If you don't know how children learn, you plan lessons that aren't going to help them to learn, or at least I did. So. And certainly, I think that, that would definitely resonate with with the listeners as well. That if you if you don't fully understand how children are learning, you're just giving them tasks that that make them busy, and it goes back to Rob Coe's thing on poor poor proxies for learning and, and being busy is, is certainly one of them. Um, kind of delving deeper into into actually the aspects of teaching, then you suggest that teachers should write down the questions that will ask prior to a lesson, and that they should ask a lot of questions. What does what does this do for for learning in our classrooms? So. For me, I think that questioning is the number one most important thing in pedagogy that we've got to get right because like teaching is always like about asking questions and answering questions. We we need to work out, first of all, are they listening? That's the first bit. Then we need to work out, do they understand what I'm saying? And then thirdly, we need to think, do they remember what I've taught them? And all of those questions are ones we should be thinking the whole time, and we, we only find those out by engaging with the children. Um, but, but I think saying, like, ask loads of questions is not helpful because you could ask really stupid questions. And I think that I've often asked really stupid questions. Um, when I come back from the holidays, I find it harder to enter into that kind of Socratic mode of teaching. I, I find myself slower and unless, sometimes I ask questions that I can only describe as filler questions because I'm not thinking carefully enough. And so even for me, and I'm, you know, I would say I'm an experienced teacher, when I've had a long time out of teaching, like the summer holidays or even a half term, I will always script my questions around my lessons so I know that I'm asking the right ones. And what tends to happen is as the term moves on, I don't do that as much because I don't need to do that as much. And you know, I've I've watched amazing teachers. As one teacher I can think of right now at a school I work with down in Portsmouth, this amazing English teacher, and he is so experienced. And I don't think he's written down a question in his life. But every time he opens his mouth and he asks a question, it's he's just nailing it. He's just getting to the absolute core of what those kids need to understand. And so I think that you, the more experienced you are, and the more in the mode you are the less you need to do that. And and I guess I'm coming to this conclusion actually that it is all about 
trusting your teachers and when you have really experienced people it you don't need to say you must write 10 questions per lesson but when you have a really inexperienced teacher or someone who's struggling saying to them script 10 amazing questions could be a really helpful thing for them to do so I'm, I'm wary of giving kind of blanket everyone should write down their questions advice but I do think it's really I find that really helpful and I think a lot of people will there's certainly value in, in having that because it lessons can go anywhere and it's, it's your job as a teacher to make sure that the, the focus of the lesson is on the learning and you can do that by not I, I, I'm very prone to going off on tangents with the children and if I don't plan plan where I'm going I could end up I could end up going to, like, they're going to learn this but they end up way over there and that's my fault because I haven't haven't prepared and planned thoroughly so there is that there is an important thing there um, kind of thinking about the, more about the children now you wrote that the most important factor in whether a lesson will succeed is down to one thing, how well the children behave. How important is this and what are the ground rules that you set out in Simplicity Rules? So I, I do think behaviour is the most important thing. When I say I was a terrible teacher when I started, it is because when I was teaching, maybe 20% of the children were listening. And those 20% found it really hard to understand what I was saying because I was trying to teach them for maybe half the lesson and the other half I was trying to manage behavior and it's really hard to learn when your learning is being broken up by something else and when you're being distracted by something else and when the the culture of learning isn't there and so you know although I think if I had been teaching in a school with perfect behavior in my first year of teaching I would still not have been a brilliant teacher but I definitely wouldn't have been a terrible one you know <laughs> more people would have learned something um, and, and even now I watch teachers especially early career teachers and they will be teaching to 90% to of the class or in, in some really challenging context they're teaching 60% of the class because you can see you can see with your eyes that most of the class or half the class are talking to each other and how can they be learning anything so it's really clear um, I worked in a school once um, and it was, they gave me the most amazing advice. I was going in as a middle leader and they said, don't worry about teaching them anything your first week. You just need to make sure they behave. That's the only thing we want to see from you in this first week. And they'd pop along to my lessons and every piece of feedback was about behavior because their belief was if, if the kids behaved, that was when I could start working on my teaching. And I really think that is that is true because, it, because what we want is for 100% of children to learn. And the children who find behavior the hardest to manage, they are the ones who most need to learn. And we can't just keep teaching and let them fall behind. It's, I don't know, I'm, I'm a big believer that it's not their, it, it's nobody's fault that they behave like that, but it is our responsibility as teachers to, to teach them to not behave like that. I'd certainly agree that I talk about behaviour being a, a curriculum all on its own that we definitely need to teach you. And you set out two rules in Simplicity Rules. Can you share what those two rules are? Oh my goodness, you're testing me on my book. <laughs> I think it's probably follow the teacher's instruction first time, every time without argument. Yep. <laughs> the other one. Uh, hold on, I've got it here. Oh. <laughs> I've got it here. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I'm trying to apply it to me. Give me two seconds. The number one, the pupils follow the teacher's instructions first time every time, and number two, the pupils focus one hundred percent on learning. Oh, thank you. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Thank you. Um, and then you went on in that chapter to talk about what teachers should do if pupils break those rules. And I think that would be very important for early career teachers and NQTs and student teachers that do listen to this podcast. If if you could share a little bit about about what they should do on that occasion. So I think the first thing is to follow the policy, even when the policy is stupid. As a new teacher, even as an experienced teacher who is new to a school, don't turn up and say, in my classroom, these are the rules, because you set yourself up against the system. Um, so always follow the policy, never deviate from the policy. If the policy is stupid, you must say something or do something. So talk to your SLT link member, talk to your line manager, uh, raise it, become a member of the SLT yourself and change it. But I really would advise you to not make up a policy if one already exists. Because what you find is that the children don't, it, 
if you did that and you'd been at the school for a year and a half, the kids would probably do, they probably respond to you. But as a new teacher, trying to set up your own policy and ignore the school's one is a, is a recipe for disaster. So follow the policy is the first thing. If no policy exists, which is, is the case in a surprising amount of schools, make sure your own behavior policy is really simple and really clear so that the children understand it and massively over communicate it. I would always just go with a three-step policy. So you do something wrong, one, it's a warning, two, it's a detention, three, it's something worse, like a longer detention or I send you out of the class or I call home, whatever that third thing you're within the sort of the back you can't just say I have an on-call policy if your school doesn't let you send children out so having these three steps I think is really important I would start really small so you can escalate so a big issue that you know I think I, I hear parents do this all the time which is like you'll be grounded for a month if you do that and you just sit there on the bus listening to this argument thinking oh god no you started too big um you know when you I remember the start when I would say you'll be in detention all week and then they'd be in detention all week and then they do something worse and I think oh my goodness what am I going to do you know I, it, so you have to start really small I mean in one school I worked at that had it, it, extraordinary behavior it was very very challenging I used to set five minute detentions um, because the children would clock up so many uh, of them with me and you, you just have to start you have to kind of judge it if you're making up your own behavior policy um, if your school has a behavior policy follow it like I say and I would always say never skip a step so children are really uh, highly attuned to whether something is fair or not. And if you skip a step in the policy, they will just be up in arms. And, and then you, you start to lose the rest of the class because they see you as the unfair teacher. So my, my, I guess my supplementary rule is never skip a step unless someone is throwing something. <laughs> Brilliant! Uh, thank you so much. We're going to go back now to to more on more on the teaching. We've covered a little bit of questioning, and we spoke about how the importance of of children behaving, and that came across really well in the in the book. Um, what what also fascinated me is you went on to speak about the idea of a two page lesson. Could you talk about how the two page lesson came about, how, and how you use it today, and then kind of follow that up on this idea of a teacher made textbook. Yeah, so the, the two-page lesson is completely stolen from Joe Kirby, who used to write the most incredible blog um, and is sadly sadly quieter these days, so we all hope he'll start blogging again. And and what his idea was just, you have the, the whole lesson is on two pages, and so you start with a recap, they read something, they write something, and that is it. And, and everything they need for the lesson is on those two pages, because what you, so his argument was you don't want children flicking back and forwards, you know, when you set a writing task, there's, there's some children will take any, as will adults, you know, we are all chronically lazy, we will take any escape route. And so if you have to flick back five pages to find a quotation, are you likely to do it? Probably not. So he's like, make it as simple as possible, put the whole thing on two pages. Um, and I found that a really helpful constraint because, so my teaching used to be hundreds of worksheets. And like I said before, like, you know, people, I would be handing out all of these worksheets. And you have to think about the amount of time you're wasting doing something that has zero impact on, on learning. So handing out a worksheet has zero impact on learning. It might only take 45 seconds. But if you're doing that three or four times in a lesson, you, those minutes add up. And we just don't have time to waste. Um, so I think having those two pages is really helpful because if you're just handing out one A3 sheet a lesson, it's done. Um, and, and the idea of that is that then you would make that into a teacher-made textbook. So this year I might make my two pages each lesson because I can't plan 15 lessons ahead. Um, but I'd save them all in a Word document. And so next year I just stick a cover on it and then you have, I don't have to hand out one sheet every lesson I hand out one booklet at the very start of the term and that is the whole thing I don't have to stand at the photocopier at 8am you know hoping it doesn't get a paper jam I've got all of my resource in that one booklet it's in a booklet so the kids can annotate it they can they can um, work with it they can do work they could do some exercises in it if that's appropriate and it just again it just makes it really simple and it means that no no moment is wasted of their time um, and I think I'm, I'm increasingly kind of selling this two-page lesson, um, the more schools that I work with this year, um, in that, so what I keep seeing is, is, so PowerPoint, I've never been a fan of PowerPoint, and 
Um, I used to hate it because of things like, oh, you have to teach in a dark room and technology fails you. Uh, but actually, the more I'm a leader in a school, the more I hate it because you can't share it. Like, it's really hard to share a PowerPoint. And actually, I have seen individual teachers teach a great lesson of a PowerPoint they have made. And if you make your own PowerPoint, you can probably deliver it quite well. But I just think in terms of workload, we are... When you give someone a PowerPoint, if you gave me your PowerPoint, I would probably sit there and go, what a slide through. I remember actually getting a head of department's PowerPoint that he was like, this is a great lesson, you should teach it. And I was like, slide three was a picture of Tinkerbell. Ian, what is this? What is this? And he he took it and he went, oh, I can't remember actually. I can't remember what I was saying there. And so you can't really share these things very easily. And what I'd found in schools where they were using a centralized curriculum on PowerPoint was you go to the shared area and it would have lesson one, lesson one edited, lesson one with notes, lesson one CDM, like, you know, the initials of the teacher who had edited it. And you go in and teachers would have done all kinds of things to the PowerPoint. Um, Whereas a booklet or a two-page lesson is incredibly easy to share. And you see that in schools like West London Free School. Um, I, I listened to Louis Everett, who is an assistant head teacher there, and he talked through um, how they used Rob Peel's textbooks in history. And he just showed like all these teachers using these textbooks, annotating the textbooks. It's very, very easy to share that resource. Um, and, and it just is over the course of that whole department every year, it's saving those teachers so much time time uh, by using that shared resource brilliant it's a, it's a wonderful wonderful way to sum up I like how you, you spoke about there because it's a very common thing that even I've experienced when you go into the, the shared area and you see all the iterations of it teachers essentially make their own versions of what's already there anyway so why not just cut that out and, and go ahead and make that you mentioned as part of your, your two page lesson a recap or a daily review that, that's now becoming more commonplace in classrooms in, in the UK um, how important is it then to, to recap on learning as you move forward? Yeah, so I, I, my fa- one of my favourite books about education is Make It Stick. And in that, it really talks about how you need to test people to make them remember things for the long term. And that just telling people something again isn't going to help. And the daily recap is just such an easy way into that. So um, when you have those five questions, and, and I would always suggest five. I've seen daily recaps. One school I worked with had 15 questions as daily recap, and they're like, it does take 25 minutes. And I thought, mm, you, know, you probably don't want to spend half your lesson on recap. Um, but it, it makes teachers focus in on what the kind of most important stuff is that they want the children to remember for the long term. And, you know, there's a lot of questions that we still don't have the answers to. So in, in America, Edie Hirsch has got, you know, written cultural literacy. And that's a great touch point for teachers because I sit here as an English teacher and I say, well, well what is the most important stuff for, for children to remember? And I, I know for my experience, but that's not categorically right. So there's no agreed things that all children should know about English. So we we don't have that yet. And we also don't have things like, what is the optimal forgetting time? So is it is it a day? Is it two days? Is it what what I don't think we yet have that information. And so it's very much about about with our daily recaps, we have to really play it by ear at the moment. So I would always do, for me, I would do five questions that had one word answers. And um, I used to, especially with my year 10s last year, I used to get them to do choral response a lot because it's only one word and you train them so you go one, two, three, and they all shout the word out. And it's really obvious when they don't know it because no one says anything or three kids shout it. And and that's really helpful because you can kind of gauge, here are the questions they're not remembering. And so for, for my children, they really struggled with dates and they really struggled with remembering uh, Queen Elizabeth versus Queen Victoria. They couldn't remember which dates went with which. So I, I would do those questions. I would really like hammer them with those questions over and over again until I was getting more like 100% response. Um, so a, a daily recap is so important. I think it is one of the most important things we have in our arsenal for getting kids to remember things for the long term. But it's not... It's not perfect, and I think there's a lot that I would love researchers to take on and, and look at. Certainly, I'd, I'd agree with that, but I like how you put that there, that it's one of the most useful things we have in our arsenal. I like how you, you said that, yeah. Um, 
you went on in the book to, and you showed some great examples of a of a knowledge organizer. Now I know I, I teach physical education in in Scot in Scotland. I don't know how much knowledge organizers are used in Scotland. Um, could you share with with the listeners what a knowledge organizer is and, and how it should be used? Yeah, sure. So um, a knowledge organizer again. Um, this is the brainchild of Joe Kirby again, uh, where it defines the core knowledge. It, it defines the most important things that children need to know. Um, and, and, it, and it's important to say that it defines it. It doesn't just list it. So you have the term or the thing you want kids to remember and then a very short definition. And the idea is that the definition should be short so they can remember it. Um, and, and, and teachers really struggle with this because they want to say everything and, the, and then you give them the short definition and they go oh but it's more complex than that and of course it is this is the bare minimum and and the idea is it's like the velcro so this is like the the, the little bit you know that everything else sticks onto so that when you to create that schema of understanding you've got that little thing that everything else can stick to so the knowledge organizer is meant to be the absolute basic the baseline that you want for everyone and at the same time, I always say this because when we're making knowledge organizers in a, for a school in crisis, um, for the year 11s, you're like, do you know what? You look at your bottom set year 11, and if they know everything on that knowledge organizer, they can probably get something in that exam. So it is the absolute basics, but it also should be setting them up. You, you know, I've, I've worked with year 11s where they really struggled to remember anything and, and giving them 10 quotations. And, you know, if you send a year 11 into an English exam with 10 quotations, that's so much better than no quotations. Um, and it really makes them feel more confident. So that there's that, that kind of that confidence aspect to a knowledge organizer as well. Um, and I would also say with knowledge organizers, the length is, is must be proportionate to the amount of lessons you have. So if you have five lessons a week of English, it might be appropriate to have one A4 knowledge organizer for that half term. Um, but I probably wouldn't be expecting, you know, RE on one lesson a week to have one knowledge organizer a term. Because if you think about the children have to learn this, the idea is that they learn the whole thing off by heart. So you have to have like a team mentality. You can't have one department, like the history department can't say, but we need them to learn these seven pages a term because it's really important. Everyone has to work as a team on it. So I think it's important to get, and, and you know, actually it's interesting you say PE because I was one of the ARC schools um, sent along some core knowledge PE stuff to me. And it was so interesting. And, and you know, and the head of department there was like, there's not a lot, but that is, this is the core knowledge for PE. And this is what we want them to know. And, and that's fine as well, you know, and you different subjects will have different amounts of core knowledge that is crucial depending on the shape of the course, depending on the like the practical skills in PE are so important. You would never say to someone, but you've got to get them to sit down and learn a load of terms because that's not the focus. I hope, I mean, I hope I've got that right. You certainly have. <laughs> and thank you so much there. Um, you go on to say in the book that reading is the single most important aspect of education, and I find this a, a very fascinating, fascinating chapter to to go through and, and think about. So, why is it so important, and, and how do we do it in our classrooms? But not only do it, but do it well. So, I, I think I don't think there's many people who disagree with how important reading is. We know that the more children read the more they, they open their worlds, the more knowledge they have, the more they can make connections, the more they can understand things. You know, the number of children who have gone to schools that are not great, but who are doing really well, and the parents say, oh, they just read all the time. You, we just, you instinctively know. There's very few people who are hugely successful that you encounter in, as a, a person in education who just go, oh, I never read. You know, people who are successful read a lot. Um, but in all my years teaching English, I have never found a foolproof way to, to check whether children were reading at home independently. Every single thing I have ever run, a child has found a way to trick me into thinking they were doing the reading when in fact they were not. And so I've, I've sort of resigned myself to the, the, the fact that you can never know if a child is reading at home. You simply can never know that unless you go to their home and read with them. Um, and so I, I find it helpful to assume or to pretend that the reading that happens in my classroom, if you imagine that is the only reading these children get that makes you see reading in school in a different way and it makes you think well we've got to get them reading as much as possible in the you know six hours they've got of lessons because that's going to really help to close the gap um, and the, the gap is there because the, the children who read less at home 
are also less likely to be picked on to read in school because we as teachers feel really bad about asking children who don't read well to read. And and like Doug Lamoff says this in Teach Like a Champion, like we grow that gap as teachers. And that is a really hard thing to realize. But when I read that, I saw... I really saw my own practice reflected in those words that children who were really scared or shy or just terrible at reading, I didn't call on them to read because it caused me a lot of behavior issues because other children would make fun of them and they'd feel bad and everyone would feel bad. So this is another reason why behavior is so important because they simply must read. Every single child must read aloud in lessons. Um, so Doug Lamov has a, a wonderful technique uh, called control the game which I 100% would say that is that is what you need to read. So control the game is just, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase it and do it terribly. I don't have it in front of me right now. But it is just, get everyone needs to read. You do it kind of at random. So you don't snake around the room. You can't tell when your turn's going to be. You pick children sort of at random. Um, although when I say at random, I always used to have a tick list so I could tick them off when I'd ask them because otherwise, uh, random is not always that random. We think we're being random and then I look up and think, I've not heard that child read for days. Um, so have something to make sure you know that everyone is reading. Get them to read a really small amount of text so it's really manageable. And for the very weakest readers, so I would do a bit of my preparation is I would find the really short, easy sentences and highlight them and sometimes put a kid's name with them because you want children to succeed. You want them to feel like like, yes, I can do this. Um, and I would also say so the other thing I would add to Dublin Mob's control the game is for the, the, the readers who are anxious. And that this is a real issue. It's not something to be scoffed at. It's children who can actually read but are so anxious. They, they whip themselves up into a, a frenzy. And I know that because I was one of those children. I hated reading aloud in school. I was terrified of it. I, I would never meet my, my teacher's eye. So I would look down. So I never did it. And then when I became a teacher, I was awful at it. I was so bad at reading aloud. And I had to, one summer, I just taught myself how to do it by, by practicing in my house as a 25 year old, which is embarrassing. And so, we, we, you know, the, the, the skill of being able to read aloud is something you are called on to do a surprising amount as an adult. Like I've been in a lot of CPD sessions and someone has just told me to read. And so children need to not have that anxiety, but the reality is they have it. So for the very, very anxious children, at first what I would always do is I would underline the, uh, the bit I was gonna ask them to read, and at the start of the lesson say, I'm gonna ask you to read this, you just need to be ready. And they feel a bit more in control. And that's not something you wanna do for the long term, but it's a crutch that will help them. Um, for children who point blank refuse, I tend to just say, that's absolutely fine, but I must hear you read aloud, so you're gonna come back at break time or lunchtime and read read the sentence to me. Uh, and it's incredible how many will decide suddenly that they would rather read it aloud in class. It's a bit of a threat, but it does work really well. Um, I've only ever had one child choose to talk to me after school and they read their sentence after school. We had a nice conversation. I called their parents to say what had happened and give them loads of praise. And they never refused to read again after that. So it is very, very, um, if you get the parents on board, it, it's, it's, I would say you should do that. <laughs> Certainly, and I, I do believe there's a lot of value in, in hearing the children read, because as you say, there's just no way that we can guarantee that they, they do that at home. Um, after reading, we're going to talk about writing now, and you say that teaching writing is a, is a challenge in most subjects, which I, I would certainly agree with, having just read some of the, the children's work for awarding them their qualifications. How do, we, how do we tackle this issue so that we can enable all children to write well? Um, so there's two books I would really recommend. So I think there's not enough written about writing, um, but The Writing Revolution is completely amazing. And it, The Writing Revolution is so good because it gives you really specific things to include in your planning to get children to write well. And what The Writing Revolution suggests is that if you phrase your questions, they will also make children engage with the content more. And when they write about that content, they'll write about it in a genuinely thoughtful way. So I'd really recommend that. And then the other book, which I'd say for, for English teachers, is um, Kate Clanchy's Some Kids I Taught and What They Taught Me. 
Um, and I find this book, it's, it's a really heartwarming read for any teacher because it will just make you reconnect and for all of us really miss being in the classroom because um, it, it, she just she obviously loves her job, she loves children. But the way she talks about teaching children to write is through poetry and she the way she explains how she gets children to creatively engage with literature and recreate it, is, it it's really spectacular and I, I would really urge English teachers to think about what she says there so those are the kind of big pieces but I also think we do need to explicitly teach things like the rules of grammar that the children don't necessarily know those rules I think that we've got better pipeline coming up from primary schools now with the new um, new focus on grammar in SATs but I would really recommend things like expressive writing teaches children the kind of the way you you phrase a sentence um, an arc actually has its own grammar program which is really excellent and, and it breaks the components of grammar down like capital letters full stops uh, it, it breaks everything down so clearly and gives the children such a high volume of practice that will really help them to to be able to write grammatically accurately um, and then you, you know so we, we're explicitly teaching them grammar then we explicitly teach them how to write a sentence how to write a paragraph and then the third thing is we just need to do loads more independent practice so we need to not be afraid of letting children write for 25 minutes 30 minutes in a lesson and I think teachers so often you see children writing in silence and the teacher just randomly speaking at different points because we feel like when they're just silent we're like well what am I doing but that is the reality you know if you work in a in a nice private school you can do your whole lesson can be teaching and you can say go away and write an essay and they probably will but the kind of schools that I work in we don't always get 100% homework completion so and, and we don't always have children who can write independently who don't have the facilities at home who don't have a quiet place at home and so we do need to get them to write independently in school and that that is just the reality and it's, it's brutal and it's unfair but that is what it is and we do need to give children that time in lessons where they are just writing uh, and that's not to say we don't do anything you know we can go around we can whisper we can give children that feedback in the moment but um i would i always caution teachers to just shut up when they're writing Stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> but we may actually come back to that with a later question but i like that idea we need to be just asking teachers to be brave and just enjoy this and and not enjoy the silence but allow the children the freedom to to practice i'm going to come back to that um, move on now to, to the idea of talk in a lesson because it was once frowned upon in teaching that a, a lot of talk was, was bad and it wasn't great but it is okay for teachers to talk in lessons could you share a little bit about this? Yeah and so I think it definitely is really okay but the proportion has to be right so like, I heard about a school and I don't know if this is true this might have just been one of those education myths I heard about a school that did lectures so it got all of the year group into a lecture hall and taught and they just gave them a lecture and I can see where the thinking comes but I think back to my university experience and I didn't understand half of what they were saying in lectures and there wasn't really the opportunity to follow up and and I, I personally I found university really really challenging and I don't necessarily think that is age appropriate for key stage three um, like I said before I think I think if a teacher is talking they need to be asking questions constantly I think that even if a teacher is speaking uninterrupted for 10 minutes how do you know they're listening how do you know they understand how how do you know that I, I just I don't you know I, work, I worked in a school once where the behavior was impeccable really amazing school in Kent and we did have this issue the children would just sit there they were very compliant and the teachers would just ramble on for, for 15 minutes and then they'd say go and the kids would just be like don't know what I'm doing but they'd have no idea because they hadn't been listening and so I think teacher talk is really important because you are the expert you need to explain things but you can't just talk because how do you know they're listening and how do you know they understand? So I'm, I'm a big fan of, like I say, of questioning. I think that, that, is the most, that is the most important thing. And also because we need, to, we need to kind of, someone at ARC always uses the phrase, put the kids to work, which I love as a phrase, but it also sounds a bit weird um, to the uninitiated, I can imagine. But you do, you need, you, the children should be the ones doing the work in the lesson. Um, and, and we also know that you can't just, you know, you can't just teach the children, here's everything I know about Hamlet, 
go do something with it. You know, you have to kind of chunk what you're teaching to children. Um, so I'm a, I'm a fan of teacher talk, but it must be with constant questioning and getting the kids to do something. I would certainly, certainly agree with that, and I love how you've, you've summed it up there. Thank you so much. Um, we, kind of, we, we kind of alluded to a little bit in the right, in the, after the writing question, but I love this idea of deliberate practicing questions in lessons, and you, and you write a bit about that in the book. How do we get this deliberate practice right? I mean, it's, it's so hard to get this right, because when you think about, I think it's always hardest for the children who struggle the most, because those children need the most time on recaps because they find it harder to remember stuff. They need the most time on explanations because they get confused and misunderstand and they need the most instruction, they need the most uh, practice. So they need the most of everything. And, and that's really hard because the reality is unless you change your curriculum for the very weakest children and you say these children will study fewer subjects, they're gonna miss out. And that is, that is the kind of brutal reality that we are really scared to confront in education. You know, we, we like, we've got high expectations for everyone, we've got a broad curriculum for everyone. Uh, but uh, the reality is, if you want children to, to go to university from a position where they are hugely far behind, you've got to sacrifice something. You can't just give them the same as everyone else and expect them to get there. Um, so deliberate practice is a constant balancing act. And it's about thinking about what your class needs right now. And that that requires experience and, and knowledge of the where you want your children to go, the exam specifications, what the standard is. So if you're a new teacher, I think one, one really helpful thing is to compare the books of your class with the books of a colleague's class. You need to just look like, are my children doing enough work? Find someone whose kids do well, like the best teacher in the school who gets great results and say, look, you've got year eight, I've got year eight. Can I look at what your kids are doing? You just need to get that mental model as a teacher of what you expect to see in lessons. Um, and, and then I, I think the other thing is, um, so like I say, the writing revolution where it has great sentence starters and it has really great ways that you get children to think about what they're writing rather than, you know, I've been really guilty in the past of writing questions where the children just copy from the text and they've got it right but they don't actually understand it whereas the writing revolution models how you get children to think through what they're writing and and, the, and then the other thing I would say is I think modeling writing as a teacher is, is both the best thing you can do and the scariest thing if someone had told in fact someone did tell me in, in my, even in my second year of teaching they said you just need to write on the board and show them how to do it and I I was genuinely afraid that I didn't know how to construct a great paragraph. And I think that that's the point at which I should have stopped and gone, that's the issue. The issue is I can't, if I can't write a great paragraph on Of Mice and Men, how can I possibly expect to teach these children how to write a great paragraph? And so although modeling writing is really scary, and what I find a lot of schools do is they, they create the model paragraph and they say, you t just teach that. That's a really great paragraph, teach that. Whereas actually what the time would be better spent coaching a, an inexperienced teacher through how they can write a, a great paragraph. And they might need, like I needed, a lot of uh, practice of writing paragraphs myself before now I just get the visualizer on and I just write it. And, and I, I feel really confident doing that because I've been teaching for 10 years and I know the exam specs and I've read thousands of kids' paragraphs so I know what makes a really good one. But I definitely really struggled with that. Um, and I think it's something that we've got to get better at training people. And that is about subject training because if, if a, a head of science had taught me how to teach a paragraph, I don't think that would have worked. It has to be in your subject. Here's how you model for the children. Okay, that idea of subject specific professional learning is, is definitely key and something that I think we we definitely need to do better at. Moving on to towards the end of the book, um I really liked uh, one of your start your podcast was no plenaries, please. Can you <laughs> yeah. share what can you share why not? Oh god, it's just a stupid name, isn't it? <laughs> no, that's not the reason. Um, I find like a, a plenary, it's like this completely arbitrary end to a lesson. Um and I, I always think about this, and I think about this. So I, I worked in a school once where they had a hinge point question, and you, at, the, at the midpoint of the lesson, you had to ask one question with one answer that would assess the learning of 32 children. 
And I just remember hearing that and thinking, that's mad. And, and I think that's the same madness that you bring to a plenary, which is we've got one task at the end of the lesson that will discover if everyone understood your lesson. And that's impossible. You can't ask one question to understand if they, unless your entire lesson was to be able to identify a simile and then at the end you said, which one of these is a simile? Like, and you would have to have, your lesson would have to be so simple to warrant that being a decent end. But the other thing, the other reason I hate plenaries is that your lesson shouldn't be, you know, I've talked about the two page lesson, but it shouldn't be, this is your lesson. It starts at 12, it ends at 12.50 and that is that. Because sometimes you need to go slower. Sometimes a lesson's really hard. Sometimes children have misconceptions that you just need to stop and address. And you're not gonna get to the end of the lesson. And that's okay, because that's what they need. Sometimes, a lesson's, the, the kids find a lesson unexpectedly easy. And actually, if you stretched it out so you could end with your beautiful plenary, they would have lost out on learning. They could have gone faster, they could have gone further. You have to be able to respond to the needs of your class because there will always, you know, there will always be time. Going a bit faster is fine because you will always have time if you've planned your lessons in advance to just add in a stretch lesson or to, to do something a bit harder. You need to be able to move at the pace of your class is, is the most important thing. And if you're dictating like the end point of your lesson, then to me that makes teaching really, it, it just isn't about your children anymore. Like I, if I think about how how I was taught in my school, it was just totally random. You know, you just go in and you just read a bit, and then it'd be like, oh, it's the end of the lesson, and that's okay. You know, it, it, I don't. I think that the more we try and dictate the shape of a lesson, the worse our teaching becomes. That said. For new, brand new teachers, I get why you want to say, spend this long on your recap, spend this long on your instructions, spend this long on your practice. That's really helpful for someone at the start of their career. But I think very quickly, in, in a good school, you would want to be moving someone away from that really, you know, strict system of timings. And I don't think I ever would say, and at the end of the lesson, spend two minutes on your one random question that checks if everyone's known it. It's, it's, too, it's too arbitrary. Certainly agree. Learning does not happen in 50 minutes and I think you've summed it up beautifully and I love the bit you say that you move at the pace of your class because some, some classes could move fast, some classes just definitely need that time and it's important that we know that. Um, in chapter 11, when you were talking about feedback, you shared a, a great story about you forcing a teacher to write in people's books even though their students made good progress in class. Could you share a little bit more about this please? Yeah, I mean, that is my moment of shame because it, it, it was sort of one of those remarkable things where I went into that meeting, I'd really prepared and I had my good things to say and they were true, that the kids were making really good progress. In fact, they looked like their writing from September to November had improved. I could see that and it had improved a lot more than most other people's in that department. And there I was to go but I need you to write what went well and even better if every two weeks. Um, and it was just this extraordinary conversation where this, this teacher who was and is a spectacular teacher, very experienced teacher, it was one of those conversations that, that would have led to a less strong-willed individual potentially leaving the profession. And that is, that is the horrible reality of that. And I feel such, the reason I put the story in is because I feel so much regret about it and I feel really, really stupid um, but at the same time being a middle leader is really tough because at that time I really believed in marking and I think that I believed in marking because of two things one is the sunk cost fallacy in that I had spent you know 12 hours a week marking for the last five years and so if marking didn't work what had I done with all those hundreds <laughs> of hours that's that's really hard to face up to is that you've wasted hundreds of hours um, and two is that marking in most cases excessive marking does work a tiny bit it does make them improve a tiny bit more than they would have done you get those tiny marginal gains out of marking and I was really committed to getting those tiny marginal gains at that point in my career uh, where I just lived and breathed school and worked you know 16 hours a day and worked weekends and didn't care because you know that you're when you're in your 20s that for some people it's very easy to fall into that trap uh, but the other thing is that that was the school policy and that even if I had disagreed with the school policy, which I didn't, but if I had disagreed with it, I still would have had to get her to do it. Because 
And that's the problem. That's the problem with leadership in schools is that what we should have done, like a better approach, this was a great teacher, her kids were making great progress. What I should have done was gone, this teacher's year eights are writing better than anyone else's year eights, even though they're a set three. Everyone needs to come into the room and she needs to say what she's doing and how she's doing it. That's what we should have done to work out what was going well in her room because something obviously was, rather than saying, here's our policy, you need to follow the policy. Um, and I do think that we're getting a lot better as schools at not doing that anymore. But I, I do worry, I think there will be listeners out there who recognize that. And middle leaders, and I, I do have friends who are middle leaders, and sometimes the messages they send me, which is, I am being made to do, insert stupid thing, what do I do? And it's really hard because you can't undermine the leadership. Sometimes you just have to do it. And, and a part of, I think for me, being a middle leader was my least favorite position I've ever been in because sometimes you just have to sell a really stupid policy. Like, oh, we're doing an extra assessment and it's really good, even though it'll be loads more marketing, it'll give us really good information. And in your head, you're thinking, this is the wrong time for an assessment. No one's got time for this. There are much bigger priorities, but you just have to lie to people. And I felt, I felt really uncomfortable doing that. And I, I hope with the school that I run, I will really encourage middle leaders to just tell me when something is stupid and really listen to them. And that, you know, we've hired some incredible people. And so I very, I, I really look forward to being told how stupid I am by my middle leaders. <laughs> That's very incredibly, incredibly refreshing to, to hear. And, and it was great that you included that story in your book. And thank you so much for sharing because there are there are so many things. I wouldn't call them stupid things and because you know, a lot of them are misguided, very much misguided. Um, just to finish up the interview sec section of the of the podcast, um, I'd like to finish on this idea of whole class feedback in order to manage workload and improve our students' performances. Can you speak to that, please? Yeah, so this is what that teacher was doing, which was, which was really great. So she was probably the first person who taught me what whole class feedback was. Um, feedback is really important. It's so important that children know that we are reading their books, that children know that we are holding them accountable, and that we as professionals know how good they are um, so that we can help them to improve. But the problem with marking is it delays that feedback so much. And when you give that feedback, it's very hard to say, the last two weeks of your work here's what you did well, here's what you could have improved. Like, it, I don't think anyone could take it. If you know, if my line manager said, let's review your last two weeks of work, I'd be like, I don't even remember what I was doing two weeks ago. Um, we need more rapid feedback than that. And so the idea of whole class feedback is you read the books and then you just write on, on a scrap of paper misconceptions, like things you need to reteach because so often it's just the same thing, same thing, same. And I've noticed on Twitter actually in this lockdown, the number of teachers who were like, I remember why I hated marking because I've just had to say the same thing to the last 23 children. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, and I would, I always talk about whole class feedback as things that you want to celebrate. So, you know, every kid secretly wants their book to be the one you show the whole class. Look how beautifully this child has written this paragraph and we're going to look at what's great about it. And you can use it as a real praise point as well. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's just, it's just so much better. I remember... Uh, when I was in my, my second or third year of teaching, um, an external visitor came into my classroom and, and said, I, you know, she was going to interview children about anything I wanted. And I said, oh, I want to find out how helpful my feedback is. Could you ask them how helpful they find my marking? And this one girl who I taught for two years, and I remember her name, but I won't share it, uh, said, I don't find Mrs. Marking helpful at all. And she said, oh, why do you find it not helpful? And she went, I don't, I can't be bothered to read it. <laughs> can't be bothered and she said how could miss make her her marking more helpful and this child said if she read aloud what she'd written in my book and I just all I could think of there was I've marked this child's book once a week for two years and she has read nothing <laughs> um, and that for me is just it's just a way if you've got even two of those kids in your class and I promise you you've got more than that it, it's not worth it you're spending so much time on something that has so little impact Whereas with whole class feedback, you can read everyone's book in, in 20 to 30 minutes, if, especially if you're just reading one lesson's worth of work, and you can turn it around and you can just reteach them what they got wrong. It's just quicker and easier for everyone. That's yeah, a great, uh, great way to finish that and a great, great uh, idea to try and manage teachers' workload, especially as we we're this idea of, of marking loads of books and wasting so much time and children not listening 
not reading it is definitely something that's prevalent in a lot of teachers' classrooms. Um, just before we go on to the final three questions that I, I've, I ask every guest, could you share a little bit about um, where listeners could find your book and where they could find out a little bit more about you, maybe your blog or your, your social media handles? Yeah, sure. Um, so my blog is readingallthebooks.com. Uh, I've not posted on it for a while. I've got about three posts, but every time I go to post something, I think it seems a bit like everyone's very worried about remote learning, which I'm not thinking about because I don't have a school. So I, I worry about putting something into the ether at the moment. So I've not posted for a while. Uh, but that has you know a back catalogue of stuff, some of which is massively out of date, so you can enjoy that. Um, my book is Simplicity Rules, which is available from all good booksellers I believe or um, you know Amazon is where I get most of my books um, <laughs> which is probably a bit bit sort of unconscionable at the moment but that that that's where we are um, yeah <laughs> brilliant and um, thank you um, I'm interested to hear what the, your answer to my next question is because considering your blog is called reading all the books so the first question in my, in my final three Joe is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your career so I'm going to be really boring with this, but I have to be honest, it's Teach Like a Champion by Doug Lamar. It is the best book on teaching practice ever written. It is, it is the teaching Bible. I still use that book almost every day, even as a head teacher. Every year I look through it and I think about two or three bits that I really want to improve in my practice that year. It, it's amazing. And, and the videos of the teachers that go with it make me want to do better and be a better teacher. Definitely, I think that's what really gives it gravitas is the, is the videos that are attached to it and you see it in action and you go, oh, I wish I was exactly like them. Um, I really like it in the videos where the, the kids click their fingers a lot when somebody says something really good. I think it must take weeks and weeks to train the children to do that. Um, second question for you, Joe, is if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher, what would it be? So for me, the thing that made me a better teacher was the brilliant teachers that I worked with. So if you're a struggling teacher or you want to get better, find out who the best teachers in your school are and watch them teach and then ask them what, why they did that thing. Like write down a thing they do that had an amazing impact and try and get into their thinking. And the other thing, if they, if they really like you, is give them a lesson you've planned and watch them change it to make it work. So for me, the thing that changed my planning was my mentor had to cover one of my lessons and I gave her the lesson. And I always remember afterwards, I was like, oh, how were you eight? And she went, I made some changes to the lesson and she showed me what she'd done with it. And it was the first time it clicked, like, oh, that's how you break something down for a child. That's how you teach it. That's how you question. Um, and so, and it's really clear when you see what you've done next to what someone else has done that is better you start to, it, it's having the idea of what great looks like, I think is really important. So find the great teachers, watch them teach, and just like, make friends with them so they will help you. <laughs> make friends with them so help you. I like that. That's a beautiful, beautiful way to sum that up. And the final question for you, Joe, is one that really fascinates me, and I'm getting some great great responses and different, different types of things coming from all my guests, is what do you think most gets in the way of, of great teaching and learning in our classrooms? I think there are two things. Um, I think systems get in the way. So having too many systems, having systems that don't suit the class, don't suit the subject, don't suit the teacher, or, or the, 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 the systems that are too rigid that don't allow for how organic so much of teaching is. And the second thing is more personal, which is tiredness. People are so tired. People are work, like teaching is, for me, the hardest job I've ever had in teaching was as a main scale teacher with a full timetable. There is nothing more physically draining than teaching six hours a day. And so people are working long hours, they are run down because behavior is bad, they haven't seen their friends, they barely see their family, they haven't watched a play, they haven't watched a film, they haven't read a book, like some teachers haven't read a book in weeks. Um, and I think we need to think about teaching as, as a brain job. Like you need to have your brain in its peak fitness to be a great teacher. And to be, to be able to respond to that many needs in the moment, you need to not be so tired. Um, and I think that we, we really need to think about teachers as like brain athletes. 
Like, how can we organize their time and their lives so they can just really, like, smash it in the classroom? Um, so for me, I think what I would advocate is that leaders have a behavior policy that works so teachers are not constantly fighting behavior. Have a feedback policy that works so teachers are not marking for hours. Um, have a sensible approach to calendar planning so don't put, like, three parents' evenings in three weeks. Um, have resources that support teachers so they don't have to plan everything from scratch. Um, and then have coaching in place so teachers are always improving, so they're always having to think about what they're doing, uh, not in what, once a year when someone finally comes to my classroom, but actually weekly, come dropping in, seeing what I'm doing, keeping me on my toes, so I'm always at kind of peak brain fitness for this job. I absolutely love that, Joe. Thinking of teachers as brain athletes and keeping us in in peak condition, you wouldn't you wouldn't have Usain Bolt sprinting six hours a day. But it's definitely what we we'll have we we'll have teachers doing. I think that was a beautiful way to to end the podcast. I'd like to take this opportunity, Joe, to thank you so much for you for giving me your time um, this morning lunchtime, and um, I really do appreciate you coming on the Becoming Educated podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time. Teach with joy.